0: From PRX.
1: This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson, Anderson. and I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This This first level of garden, this is
2: Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken piece. Very well done.
1: Editing
3: is all about
4: timing.
0: I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right?
3: Studio
0: 360. It's Kurt Anderson.
1: This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And right now I am looking at panel 22 west of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial here in Washington. And a little more than halfway down is the name Frederick D. Blackwell. His widow, Asenith Blackwell, comes here twice a year on Memorial Day and Veterans Day to look at her late husband's name on this panel.
5: In my mind, My husband is still 24, still looks 24, but I'm 71. I was going home to Pennsylvania. Mind you, this was in 1967. And I'm standing there waiting for them to call the bus for Uniontown. And all of a sudden, I heard this boom. A
1: soldier had dropped his luggage just to get her attention.
5: And I said to him, a complete stranger said, if you're ever in Washington, call me. Here's my number. And then when I got off the bus, I said, I don't even know his name. <laughs> and so about a month later, then the phone rings, and he said, this is Blackwell. And I said, Blackwell who? And that was in end of September, yeah. And that November, we were married. Now I know he knew he wasn't coming back because the last time he came home, he says, if, if something happens to me, although nothing is, would you remarry again? And I, that's the furthest thing from somebody's mind, you know, and he says, always remember, as long as you stay in my name, the army will be there for you for the rest of your life. I made sure his name was here, that other people came for me just to make sure it was here but I did not want to see it myself. Took me three years and it was unbelievably emotional.
1: On Memorial Day 2012, Asimith Blackwell came to hear President Obama commemorate the 50th anniversary of the beginning of America's war in Vietnam.
6: You're often blamed for a war you didn't start. And You should have been commended for serving your country with valor.
1: After the president spoke, the wall was open to the public. More than 40 years after that war ended, emotions still run raw here at the wall. Grief, regret, awe, sometimes anger. There
6: are tens of thousands of veterans that were kept away from this memorial all day. This day that we come to remember... We were kept away by guards. I was chased out by guards. We had to wait till, what, 3.30 in the afternoon on Memorial Day. This is our wall. This is not the president's wall. This is our wall.
1: This is our wall. Veterans didn't always feel that way. The Vietnam Veterans Memorial, built in 1982, began as probably the most controversial public sculpture in American history. Today, it still raises questions. What does it mean to memorialize a war that did not go the way anybody wanted? Can a work of art heal a nation? And is one point of healing to be ready to fight more wars?
7: John Ashley
8: Templeton. Second
1: in this hour of American Icons, we'll talk to the people who dreamed up the wall.
8: Born in Lake Bluff, Illinois, killed July 18,
5: 1968.
1: We'll look at how the Vietnam Veterans Memorial changed the way Americans think about war and the way we grieve in public.
5: I can't even say thank you and welcome home to a Vietnam vet to this day without crying.
1: Before the wall was an icon, before it was even a design competition, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial was a cause championed by a single Vietnam vet named Jan Scruggs. I've gotten to the point in my life where I have sort of become an urban myth. Jan Scruggs had been a rifleman with the U.S. Army's 199th Light Infantry Brigade. Like a lot of Vietnam vets in the 1970s, he felt loathed at worst, neglected at best. Then, in the spring of 1979, Scruggs was watching a movie, The Deer Hunter, starring Robert De Niro and Christopher Walken as Vietnam vets who'd been through a nightmare. In the final scene of that movie, the surviving characters sit around the kitchen table.
9: God bless America Land
0: that I love Stand beside
9: her and guide her to the night
2: with the light from above. Just hearing that scene again really it just about brought me to tears. If you played another minute of it, I think I might have sort of come about. Scruggs
1: had gotten a master's degree in psychology. His focus was PTSD and the post-war recovery process. After watching The Deer Hunter, he realized there needed to be a public place where Vietnam veterans could be honored and could grieve for their buddies who didn't make it. And this new memorial had to be on the National Mall in Washington.
10: And it was an oddball idea because in 1979, the war was barely over.
1: Kristen Haas teaches history at the University of Michigan. It was still
10: profoundly unpopular. Nobody had built a memorial, a war memorial, in a very long time. There there were none on the National Mall.
1: In Washington at the time, there was only a plaque dedicated by Jimmy Carter and Max Cleland, the VA administrator who lost both legs and an arm in the war.
11: I can uh, say that I was the first guy to buy Jan Scruggs a free lunch in Washington (laughs) after I heard that uh, they had raised the grand sum of $72. And I said, who are these people? You know, I'm head of the Veterans Administration. I ought to know these people.
1: Scruggs was able to get the land with the help of a few key senators. The memorial would be paid for by private donations. On Veterans Day 1980, an open design competition was announced. One of the designs submitted came from a Vietnam vet named Tom Carhart. At that point, Carhart had no idea that he would become the main antagonist in this story, fighting to stop the wall as we know it today. His proposal for a Vietnam Veterans Memorial was traditional as art and patriotism a statue of a soldier cradling a dying comrade. The dying soldier was modeled on a real guy with whom Carhartt had served in Vietnam.
11: Speedy Gonzalez, his real name was Lou Lopez. He carried my radio.
1: Lopez saved Carhartt's life when he was leading his men up a hill. I knew
11: my head was going to come into sight first, and that's where the machine gun was, right on the trail. But I couldn't stop moving. My men know where we are. They're on my right and my left. If I stop, they stop. So I kept going, and I knew I was going to die. And just before my head came into view, Speedy went running by me with his weapon on automatic.
1: Thanks to Lopez, they took the hill.
11: And then about a week later, we uh, went up another hill and got Speedy got hit. So I dragged him down the hill and I got to a place where I could pick him up. And uh, I put my hands under his knees and the other arm. And I pulled up and stepped back. And as I did, his shirt opened and he had a... A wound in his back, that was his death wound.
1: Carhartt's proposed statue of him cradling Lopez was not a finalist among the 1,421 submissions.
11: Look, (laughs) it didn't win, it didn't deserve to win. That's fine.
1: But like a lot of veterans back then, Carhartt expected something conventional, maybe a grand white marble memorial that would commemorate the heroics of soldiers like Lopez. The design committee was bowled over by a very different kind of proposal. It was a scale model of two walls in the shape of triangles wedged into the earth of the National Mall. And just as unusual, the walls were black. Was the color meant to symbolize sadness and loss? Maybe, but University of Pittsburgh historian
8: Kirk Savage says the black granite served another purpose. Her design absolutely demanded black granite because the whole point of it was that you were going to see a reflection in the wall. And you realize that you are as much a part of the monument as the granite and the names.
1: All the designs were submitted anonymously. Jan Scruggs had no
2: idea whose proposal this was. We uh, opened up the envelope and we saw that she was a student at a university in Connecticut known as Yale, that's Y-A-L-E. Thank you. And uh, that's all we knew about her and that that the name appeared to be very Asian to us, which we thought was sort of very nice because it showed how beautiful and fair the competition was. And and when you first saw that design, what, what was your reaction? My reaction was, gee whiz, I think we have, are going to have a public relations problem on our hands. No kidding.
1: The winner was a 20-year-old Chinese-American student named Maya Yin Lin. She'd originally created the design as homework for a class on funerary architecture. For the class, she had procrastinated, handing in the project at the last minute. When she was presented at a press conference in May of 1981... Maya Lin still seemed slightly overwhelmed.
12: My roommate came and got me and only said, don't get your hopes up, but you've got a call from Washington. So (laughs) I went running back to my room, waited for them to call back, and all they said was, don't get your hopes up. We want to talk to you about your design. And they told me, and I didn't quite understand. (laughs) So they told me again, and I'm still not quite understanding.
1: (laughs) A lot of people didn't understand. Lynn was about to encounter a flood of unhappiness and anger, but this very young designer would not deviate from her vision. I asked Maya Lynn if she would approach the memorial differently now as an artist in her 50s.
0: The only change between now and then is if I would have been able to survive the criticism without having unbelievable doubt that I was right, which could have really changed or influenced. But when you're that age, you know you're right, and they're all wrong. And so that's, that's how I felt. You know, bless youth. It it's,
1: it's it's protects one, us, right? It's one case where youth was not wasted on the <laughs> To fulfill the requirement that the names of all the dead had to be listed, Maya Lin had the original idea to list the names in the orders of their deaths. In the fight over the
0: design... They really tried to convince me to make it alphabetical, and I absolutely – we had to have it chronological.
1: What was the argument for it being alphabetical? It would be easier to use? It would
0: be easier to use. And I said, you don't think people will take the time? A little time? Won't it make it more special? And then I I think we pulled up the number of Smiths there were, and I said, that is going to make people feel not special.
1: Some of the haters of the unbuilt memorial attacked Lynn personally.
0: You know, there was a lot of suspicion. Oh, it's anti-war. She's, uh, look at her long hair. It's like she's, and it's like, no. And she's Asian, And she's Asian. Oh, by the way, that was really the one. That was the thing that caught me off guard because I was extremely happily, really naive. And the veterans, they were so sweet. They protected me. And finally, after about, Seven months in Washington, I said, have there been any, like, letters about my race being an issue? And they would look at their feet, and they were so embarrassed, and it's like, yes, we've gotten the letters about how dare you let a gook design the memorial. And I was blessedly really naive about it.
1: But in 1981, it was the veteran Tom Carhart who became the public voice of opposition, partly because he'd been an ordinary grunt, just like Jan Scruggs.
11: When the design was announced, I was horrified. So I decided to speak out. I spoke before the Fine Arts Commission.
1: Carhart coined the memorable and endlessly repeated phrase black gash of shame.
11: As a Vietnam veteran who feels dishonored by the design that was declared the winner of the VVMF competition, I call on the United States Fine Arts Commission to reopen the selection process of the design competition and to require that the winning design be chosen by a jury composed exclusively of Vietnam veterans.
1: Both sides appealed to the Reagan White House, but the administration was also divided. Finally, they arrived at a compromise. Maya Lin's design would go forward if the site also included a traditional figurative statue of soldiers. Tom Carhart was satisfied.
11: And there was a round agreement for a statue, and then I said, if you're going to give us a statue, you've got to give us a flag, an American flag. And so they said, okay. And the initial placement of the flag was at the intersection of the walls, and whatever statue was going to be made was going to be placed within the walls.
1: Which made Maya Lynn livid. She said the proposed changes to her design made it look like a putting green.
8: Maya Lynn the architect-designer who won the original competition.
1: In October 1982, a month before the dedication, she spoke at an open
8: forum.
12: These intrusions, which treat the original work of art as no more than an architectural backdrop, reflect an insensitivity to the original design's subtle, spatial eloquence. And the statues, merely eight feet tall, are taller than most of the wall for most of its length. These intrusions rip apart the meeting of names, destroying the meaning of the design.
1: The chairman of the Federal Commission of Fine Arts had the final say, and he went with Maya Lin's vision. Tom Carhart felt betrayed once again.
11: The fine arts commissioners moved the flag and the statue off into the woods and took them away from the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, and I, I still find it an offensive slap in the face.
0: I had sympathy with that reaction from the get-go. It was a very unusual design. The night before the dedication, I went on site, and this enormous veteran practically verbally pinned me at the apex and was just yelling at the top of his lungs. I mean, he was just attacking about, you know, how dare I do this and... And all I could think of is it was working because it was pulling out an incredible amount of emotion.
1: That emotional power ended up winning over the American public. The wall may not glorify this war, but it does glorify the people who fought it. And those 58,000 names on the wall were our people. coming up
9: I saw her from a distance as she walked up to the wall in her hand she held some flowers
1: visitors come by the millions every year to experience the Vietnam Veterans Memorial a lot of them feel compelled to leave objects at the base of the wall letters boots teddy bears aftershave cigarette lighters dioramas enough stuff to fill a museum this collection is more than
13: misery, war, and death. And I want to emphasize this to people. This collection is also celebration
1: of life.
12: She said, Lord, my boy was special, and
3: he meant so much to me.
1: That's just ahead in Studio 360's American Icons Hour on the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. From Public Radio International, in association with Slate.
14: Support for Studio 360 comes from Babbel, offering a language program that uses interactive dialogue and speech recognition technology to teach a new language, like Spanish, French, or Italian. Babbel is available in the App Store or online at babbel.com.
11: And the first time I came, it absolutely just overwhelmed me. I come every Memorial Day and Veterans Day to honor my fallen brothers.
9: Yeah, but for the grace of God... Uh, My name would be up there instead
1: of his. I've I've had a wonderful life, but Jim didn't, so. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. In this hour of our series on American icons, we're looking at one of the most controversial and brilliantly successful works of public art in American history, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. How did a design that initially shocked and upset so many people so quickly become a kind of sacred space, almost universally loved? Historian Kirk Savage says that before it was built, critics of the wall were only reacting to a design proposal. You really have to go to the National Mall to feel its power, to be convinced.
8: You almost lose your connection with the mall. You know, the kind of traffic noise is diminished, The soundscape changes. The space feels more quiet, more intimate.
4: And you start out, and it's just a little. It's just not so bad, is it?
8: Marilyn
1: Young teaches history at NYU.
4: And then you keep going down, and that moment when the wall rises above your height with the names of the dead. When you're standing at the
10: center, you are six feet under. You know, you're sort of literally buried with that list of names
2: when I see the names of 12 guys, you know, who died on January 21st of 1970. And their names are right next to each other. So it really does take you back in time. From the
1: time the wall opened, people were putting paper and pencil up against the letters carved into the granite. They rub impressions of the names of their husbands, fathers, sons, daughters, siblings, and friends.
8: I got 23 more to
7: go.
3: (laughs) And I love it when it rains, so Uh it looks like the wall is weeping.
1: Laura Palmer was posted in Saigon as a journalist in the early 1970s. She has dedicated herself since to helping men and women who were undone by the war.
3: It's positioned in such a way that here you see the Washington Monument in this panel, and here you can see the Lincoln. Uh These men and women who were reviled and stigmatized are joined with the two greatest presidents in our history.
1: I first visited the wall for a story I was writing for Time magazine in the 1980s, shortly after the statues of soldiers had been added to the grounds. I wrote Around the statue, people talk louder and breathe easier, snap vacation photos unself consciously, eat Eskimo pies and Fritos. But it's the wall that veterans approach as if it were a force field. It's at the wall that families of the dead cry and leave flowers and mementos and messages, the way Jews leave notes for God in the cracks of Jerusalem's Western Wall.
10: The important thing to know about the Vietnam Veterans Memorial is that it made memorials matter again.
1: Historian Kristen Haas says the Vietnam Veterans Memorial changed the way we grieve in public.
10: The practice that is ubiquitous now of... At the site of some kind of public tragedy, people bringing their teddy bears and their toys and letters and flowers. It's everywhere. It happens all the time now. But it didn't happen in public places in the United States before Myelin's memorial.
1: Which is amazing. This time when I visited, I hardly even noticed the teddy bears and flowers and letters that visitors left at the wall because that's what I expected to find. The journalist Laura Palmer has been obsessed with those objects since she first visited the wall in 1986.
3: And in talking to the park ranger that day, he told me that everything that's left at the wall is saved. And at that moment, I knew. I knew I had to see that material.
1: That material, thousands of personal objects, is saved at the National Parks Museum Resource Center in Maryland. The collection inspired Palmer to write a book called Shrapnel in the Heart, Letters and Remembrances from the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. One chilly day, I drove out to the museum with Palmer. She spent a lot of time there back in the late 80s when she was writing her book.
3: It was early in the collection, so there were no rules. You didn't have to sign forms, you didn't have to sign this. You just kind of had to say, hey, could I come out and look at the stuff?
1: Touching the objects is a little like a sensory time machine. There was a heavy green poncho with a peace symbol painted on the back. There was a nineteen sixties pack of cigarettes.
3: I used to smoke camels yeah, unfiltered. What? Lucky the, strikes. This
1: is a Lucky Strikes pack. No, this this already no, looks so uh, antique. Yeah, and it does. It's a mint condition pack of Lucky Strikes.
13: You could get anything with cigarettes. You can get out of duty. You could do anything. And the jungles, I mean, we have a cigarette in here in that case and said it ain't wet and it ain't broke. That was the value of a cigarette. That is Dury felt the museum resource curator. This collection is more than misery, war, and death. And I always emphasize this to people. This collection is also celebration of life. And you served in Vietnam? Yes, sir. When did you serve? 1967, 1st Infantry Division.
1: And do you, do you go to the walls sometimes? Perhaps. Dury was more eager to talk about this odd, singular museum he oversees than his own wartime experience. He showed us around the warehouse. Okay, we start here. These are the blues. This is a tiger cage. Uh, This tiger cage was something left at the...
13: Yes, it was used in a POW MIA commemorative parade. These blue boxes are ours. Look down the rows. It's like a canyon. This is a grand canyon. Blue boxes. Blue boxes.
1: This... Archaeological site is being created self-consciously in real time. Everything that gets left at the wall comes here. We looked at wedding photos, lighters, replicas of military vehicles. There were handmade memorials, like a pair of muddy boots glued to a plaque. One person left a copy of a pro-war book shot full of holes.
13: It will seduce you. It will draw you in. This is a living collection. Plus, I always tell people about this collection. There are things in here militarily that should not be in here. If you were in the military, these things are not given. They are earned. The Medal of Honor, uh, just medals in general. I said, when people pass away, they're not only bequeathed to their families or the service organization. I said, people come in and they're leaving these medals at a a federal site? So, Dury. Yes, as a vet. Yes. What does it mean for you to be
3: here day after day after day?
13: Well, one very few times I'll let you in on my personal thinking. In Vietnam, there were about 8 million people who, who served during what's known as the Vietnam War. And of that 8 million, about 3 million were in-country Vietnam veterans. And I've often wondered about, even at the lower three million number, out of three million people, how in the world did I end up here?
3: But what does it mean to be here?
13: I think I've helped a lot of people, and I've helped me. It's an honor.
1: This museum also means a lot to Laura Palmer. When she first came here, after being a reporter in Vietnam, she was entranced by the letters that had been left at the wall.
3: And I sat alone in this cold, dark warehouse, just reading letter after letter. And I thought, I cannot believe there is this much pain from that war. I had to know who these people were.
1: So she decided to find them. She hired a researcher, and together they looked for clues in the letters.
3: It was strange calling people because most people had no idea anyone would read what they left at the wall.
1: One of the people Palmer phoned was ex-Army Lieutenant Dan Doyle.
6: Well, I wrote the letter to Dan Neely, my radio operator, and Rudy Valenzuela. A machine gunner.
1: On March 1, 1968, Dan Neely volunteered to accompany Lieutenant Doyle on a mission to save their wounded comrade Larry Carpenter. Just as they reached Larry, Dan was shot in the head. And when
6: Dan was killed and he fell on top of Larry, his body protected Larry from the hand grenades. So Dan had an arm blown off and some other horrible injuries, but he was already dead. But Larry lived and is now the mayor of a small town in West Virginia, by the way. Part of an officer's duty when his men get killed is to write their families and tell them how they died. And as it happened, I was wounded myself shortly after March 1st and ended up spending a month in a hospital before I went back to Vietnam. By the time I got back to Vietnam the records and personal effects of Dan and Rudy had already been shipped home, so I didn't have any address to write.
1: He left his letter at the wall just to clear his conscience. Dear Dan
6: and Rudy, I was your leader and I have not forgotten you, nor have I forgotten how each of you gave your lives to rescue wounded comrades from a nameless hill and a worthless country. It was important for people to know how and why you died. And it is important for your families to know that you did not die alone or in vain. Your friends were with you to the bitter end.
1: Laura Palmer helped Lieutenant Doyle get in touch with Dan Neely's mother, Laverne, who lives in a small town in Alabama. Laverne had waited 19 years to learn exactly how her son had died.
4: The family had feared that he died a lingering, painful death. In early 1987, I talked to Dan Doyle, who told me he died instantly from a bullet wound to the head. Terrible as it was, the news brought me the peace I had prayed for. I never made an effort to come to the wall, Vietnam Wall. I just didn't think, well, it couldn't bring my son back. I came to the wall for the first time in 87 and when I looked at that wall it just seemed like Dan was looking at me and I could hear him. The wall has meant a lot to me, it has has done a lot of healing. And I have been to the wall now several times, quite a few times, and I have enjoyed every trip I've made. And we've met, I've met all these fellows that they'll even call me on the phone, and they've adopted me as their mom. They call me mom.
1: Dan Doyle gave something priceless to Laverne Neely, which illustrates the power of this memorial to move and connect people. But the wall still gives Doyle pain. 45 years later, he's haunted by his memories of the war. I In Vietnam, I probably
6: killed... I was responsible for the death of anywhere from two to 400 people. At least three-fourths of them were women and children. But our standard procedure was we would go in to check out the village. If we were shot at while we were approaching the village we stopped approaching called in artillery and blew up the village and then we went in and checked out what was left and that's where the women and children came they were dead I'm not the person that I was before the war I'm not the man I
1: used to be before Vietnam I'm not even sure
6: I was a man then
1: Around 2 million Vietnamese people were killed during the war. If their names were included on the wall, it would stretch all the way across
9: the National Mall. One of the reasons why the memorial is powerful is that it remembers certain people and excludes many others. Viet Tan
1: Nguyen was born in Vietnam at the height of the war. He's now a professor of American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California.
9: We're going to remember 58,000 or so American names, which will allow us not to remember many millions of others, uh, other names whose lives are intertwined with this very divisive divisive war that these American soldiers died for. And so the, the power of the healing and memory that the war, that the memorial is able to enact, is fundamentally based on what it allows us to forget. The American
1: Civil War was horrific, but it ended slavery. World War II was awful, but Nazism was vanquished. Among America's wars, Vietnam was uniquely traumatic because its outcome didn't seem worth the terrible price. That's why the memorial is black. That's why it sinks below ground. That's why it's called the Healing War. But not everybody can make it to Washington, D.C. In a minute, we'll hear how the Vietnam Veterans Memorial spawned replicas that travel across the United States. Sometimes I think it's more powerful when it's in your own town,
7: you know, because there's a lot of times you go to D.C. and you're distracted. When you see it in your own town, you're more in your own comfort zone. And I think it's got more of an impact.
1: The wall makes its way to where you live. That's just ahead in Studio 360's American Icons, The Vietnam Memorial, from Public Radio International in association with Slate. I'm
11: gonna say I'm I got to go to Vietnam.
14: Support for Studio 360 comes from Babbel, a language app that teaches real-life conversations in a new language, like Spanish, French, or German. Babbel's 10- to 15-minute lessons are available in the App Store or online at com.
2: I saw a crowd of people on the White House lawn all carrying signs about Vietnam, so I went on over just to see what I could see.
1: I'm Kurt Anderson, and this is Studio
2: 360. It's a strange-looking bunch. But then, I never did understand civilians.
1: In today's hour in our American Icon series, we're looking at the legacy of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial.
2: Now is the time that we've been waiting
1: for. On November 13, 1982, veterans poured in from all over the country to experience the memorial for themselves after a year of contentious public debate.
5: Vietnam
2: veterans have come to Washington, D.C. to dedicate the memorial to all who served.
7: I went to the dedication in November of 82, and I went with a pretty negative attitude about it, but back then I had a pretty negative
1: attitude about everything. Like a lot of veterans, John Devitt returned from Vietnam feeling insulted, ignored, angry. And he'd heard the bad press about this new memorial in Washington that it was some kind of avant-garde anti-war art. But he decided to go to DC and check it out.
7: And then when I got there, it was like whew, it kind of softened my anger, you know, because I was angry for 12 years. It seemed like all the guys that were killed, and it was like nobody cared. But then I saw that people did.
6: With this dedication, America is saying, welcome home.
1: After the dedication, he went back home to Northern California. He couldn't get the memorial out of his mind. He wished that his friends could see it, but they couldn't manage to make the trip to Washington. So he came up with this crazy idea. He was going to build a half-size replica of the wall. So me
7: and three other guys went back to DC and spent a week back there in February (laughs) photographing the panels. And uh, I mean, it was was brutal.
1: Eventually, he created 12 foot by 18 foot panels using a silkscreen stencil process. Each panel is then welded onto a frame. He decided to take his replica on the road and call it the moving wall.
7: You go to D.C. and there's a lot going on around you. There's a lot to see. When you see it in your own town, you're more in your own comfort zone. And I think it's got more of an impact.
11: I want to thank John for bringing this into Union. It's a beautiful thing to see here. Thank you, John.
1: his crews are fiercely loyal, working for very little money decade after decade.
7: Okay, all the Marines, drop and give us 20.
2: I think it's a real privilege to have this <sighs> come to our community.
11: It looks very similar, there's there's no difference in the, in, in the wall. Uh, you know, they're the same names, just too many of them. And,
1: that's 60, I think, well... Oh,
11: right here. That's 60,
1: right there, and he's the yeah, first one there. That's the first
9: one. So, Gary. We finally figured it out. So you can tell we were infantry, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> If people needed help looking up a name, for years, the person to ask was Sharon Donito. She worked as an informational guide at the moving wall, as well as at the real Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington. She preferred working with the moving wall where she got to see the same visitors again and again.
14: And then they bring you something. I wanted to show you my, the picture of my son. And I wanted you to know that he's on panel 17 West, line 124. And I said, Well, let's go down. You introduce me to your son.
1: The moving wall became so popular it prompted imitators of the original imitation. There was the traveling wall, the wall that heals, the American Veterans Traveling Tribute, and so on. The idea of Maya Lin's design may have seemed outrageous to a lot of veterans in the 1980s, but now these groups are all competing with each other to prove their fidelity to her vision.
14: And if you look at some of the copies, they've had some considerable liberties in the way that they've been put together— to make it more user-friendly. And as far as I know, until the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. is changed, the you cannot change the replicas to make it user-friendly.
1: As imperfect as some of these replicas may be, they still bring forth the same sorts of emotion that Mylin intended.
14: I always say in the morning, as the sun's coming up, you see the steam coming off of the memorial, and it's like the spirits are rising. And I always say when I work at the memorial, "Okay, guys, company's coming. It's time to get up. And as you see the steam going up, it really is like they're getting up. And at night, when the sun goes down, I tell the guys, "Okay, you can rest now but get some rest because they'll come back again tomorrow it was my generation and somebody's got to take care of them and um, John brought the memorial to the hearts and the lives of people I try to remember that the memorial is a heart full of loads of people
1: But what about the generations to come, the ones who were born after the fall of Saigon, after the fall of communism? Teenagers at the wall today can barely grasp the enormity of that conflict.
5: It was just overwhelming to see all the names, and I couldn't wrap my mind around how many people those names belonged to. I, I feel very sad for all the lost lives and all the people that lost their loved one. A lot is at
1: stake in how these kids and future generations react to the wall. And some people continue to worry that this dark geometric structure might be conveying a message that's incomplete.
10: The problems they saw were, was that it it wasn't celebratory, that it made fighting and dying in an American war seem tragic.
1: Historian Kristen Haas.
10: The idea of... Millions of school children year after year going to the National Mall and standing at the Vietnam Memorial and thinking, this is what it means to be an American soldier, produced a lot of anxiety on the part of the people who were trying to recruit those kids to be in an all-volunteer military.
1: After the wall was built, there was still space on the National Mall, so other veterans lobbied to add their own memorials memorials that would convey an unambiguous message of patriotism. In 1995, the Korean War Veterans Memorial was dedicated. It is dominated by figurative sculptures portraying a platoon on the march. Nine years after that, a neoclassical World War II memorial was finally added to the mall. Professor Marilyn Young. All of
4: these, to me, represent, first of all, the mall as war theme park, which is... Disturbing enough, but also its failure, the failure to make Vietnam lie down and be quiet. So you have to keep building things on top of it to say no to
13: it.
1: Jan Scruggs and the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund are trying to have the last word on the mall. Right now, they're building an education center across Constitution Avenue that will be a supplement to the wall, the head to its heart.
2: We will have. Within this, the photographs of the casualties, we now have 30,000 of the photographs of the 58,000 we need. Values like honor and loyalty and duty will keep fading in and out with these haunting photos.
1: Back in the early 80s, Scruggs fought critics on the right who didn't like this severe black design. Now he's facing down some critics on the left, like University
8: of Pittsburgh historian Kirk Savage what this visitor center about is, is about is really trying to kind of normalize the war to make it part of a patriotic narrative of military service that starts from the Revolutionary War and that goes up to the present day in Afghanistan. And that's not at all what the original conception of the memorial was. The original conception of the memorial was that this war was a different kind of war. Uh, the, reason, the whole reason that it, it required a monument was that it was uniquely traumatic – in American history, and uniquely traumatic for the soldiers who fought in it.
6: It's not partisan. It's just straight history. It is just straight who served, who died, and what was the history? What were the facts?
1: Former Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel is a Vietnam veteran. When he was in the Senate, he wrote the legislation that created the Education Center.
6: You you focus on the warrior. You, you focus far more on the individual who gave their lives. Wars are not partisan, I mean, as far as I know, and every war uh, I've ever known about, read about in the war I served in. Uh, Republicans die, Democrats die, independents die, atheists die, uh, Buddhists die. Uh, everybody dies and, and everybody serves.
1: But Professor Viet Tongguin Nguyen says the Vietnam Memorial already focuses on the warrior. And by being such a powerful tribute to soldiers, he thinks, it makes us
9: more supportive of wars in general. It becomes very difficult to oppose a war, but also to support the soldiers who fought the war. And the Vietnam Veterans Memorial has been key to that kind of narrative because what it's done, again, is to allow us to forget the divisiveness of the war and to remember the American soldier as someone who is beyond reproach. And that kind of contradiction, I think, has been one of the reasons why perhaps the anti-war movement in the United States has not been as effective as it ha- as it was during the Vietnam War.
1: Anti-war, pro-war, the wall has been like a mirror to America's complicated and conflicting sentiments. The real impact of Myelin's design is how it's changed the way we mourn as a nation. Early on, like
0: the veterans were asking me before it was built well, what do you think people are going to do when they first come here? And I wanted to say they're going to cry, but I knew that that would make me even stranger than I'm sure they already thought I was.
1: There are now echoes of Maya Lin's work everywhere. The memorial at the World Trade Center features the names of the dead etched in black stone.
9: For me, the names were key to it. They were about the individuality of each person. And there's nothing, I think, more personal than the name that we carry
1: Michael Arad designed the 9-11
9: memorial. You're given your name at birth, and you, you grow into that name, and if you change your name at some point in your life, that is uh, a momentous occasion. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to sort of to mark both this collective loss, but also the individual loss uh, that, that one by one by one created this, this tally.
3: Kenneth J. Krause. George R. This is what war is. The series of deaths, day after day after day. Anyone can relate to a name. If you've given birth to a child, if you've held a baby in your arms, if you've baptized someone and say, I name you, this wall will break your heart. And I think that's what people will remember a 100 years from now.
13: Cosmo have...
7: David C. Phelps Martin W.
13: Prather Edwin P. Prentice
1: A lifetime from now, I'm betting the Vietnam Veterans Memorial will endure because it's a work of art that looks unflinchingly and respectfully at enormous sacrifice and death. It captures and conveys the inevitably mixed feelings of heroism and loss, which is what a great memorial is supposed to do.
4: Kenneth J. Krause.
3: George R. Rowland. Thomas E. Russ. David A. Schultz. Robbie Soto.
1: Thank you for listening to this hour of Studio 360's American Icons. You can hear my full interview with Maya Lin at Studio360.org. You can also see pictures of my trip to the warehouse where they store all those objects people have left at the wall. Today's show was produced by Eric Malinsky and edited by Lital Molad, with sound design by John Delore. Thanks also to Chris Bannon, Melinda Ward, Leslie Wolf, and Ellen Widmark. Since we first aired this hour in 2013, Marilyn Young has died. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate.
14: Studio 360's American Icons Project is made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Great Ideas Brought to Life, and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks.
1: Next time on Studio 360. Every generation has the fears that are in Fahrenheit 451. The sci-fi masterpiece that was a response to McCarthyism.
3: How do we continue to be people who care about books and care about life and care about the truth?
1: Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. Our latest installment of American Icons next time on Studio 360.